EdMed Talks. I'm Dr. Adam DeVico, an educator. And I'm Dr. Jacqueline DeVico, a pediatrician. And we're your husband-wife duo for all things parenting. Jack, can you believe it? We have hit 30 episodes. I know. That's crazy to think about. Yeah, we just started this, uh, what, maybe seven-ish months ago. I think it was like summer. It was like around summer of uh, 23, maybe even a little bit before that. So it's been less than a year. And uh, it's been great just getting to do uh, these episodes with you. And we've had lots of great guests as well and all these topics. So it's been really cool and it's gone so quickly. And uh, uh, I hope we get to continue talking to parents, friends, families uh, about just things we know from a parent perspective, an educator perspective, and pediatrician perspective. So today, episode 30, uh, season three, episode 10, we are going to kind of circle back uh, because one of our like most downloaded episodes was the final episode of season two, where we called it the panic list. And in it, we highlighted a lot of things that parents frequently get worried about. Yes, things that parents often see in their child or notice about their child, panic about, and then rush to their pediatrician or their teacher. And these are things that we commonly see that are not nearly as scary as parents make them out to be. That's right. So this time we do have another panic list, except we wanted to kind of twist it at this time and take it, I suppose, a little bit more literally, uh, because now the panic list are things that I suppose a doctor or a teacher would be a little bit more concerned about. So we have, well, I think we had aim for a top 10, but it's maybe like... We have a top nine. We thought that adding a 10th just to make it an even number didn't seem real. And so we have our kind of top nine list of things that as a pediatrician and an educator, I probably get more worried or concerned about than the average parent does. Yeah. And so let's jump in and I'll, I'll kick off with our first one. And it deals with a, uh, a prevalent issue as students, children get older, and it deals with social media and online predators specifically. And so as your child gets a little bit older, they may engage uh, on social media platforms with cell phones, uh, laptops, and through those types of means, you may learn that your child is speaking to other people who they don't know personally, uh, but they are talking to them. And, and many times it's through a just very innocent type conversation. But uh, as we know, as adults, there are predators out there. And as parents, as educator, doctor, we are concerned about children who are uh, vulnerable and may fall victim to these online predators. And yeah, good rule of thumb with your child is if they are communicating with somebody on the internet, they need to make sure they've met that person in real life. Um, we actually had an instance uh, a couple mm-hmm. years back. Our older son was playing an online game with somebody and his friend brought a third person in and I was kind of listening. I ever heard Ryder go, oh, I can't play. I don't know him in real life, so I can't play. And chose something else. Now, later I had asked Ryder who that person was, and it turns out it was his friend's cousin. So I didn't have to reach out to the parent. It wasn't somebody to be concerned about, but that's a good rule of thumb to have. Yeah. And as you work with your children when they're young, training them on that general rule of thumb is a, is a good practice. And so to keep our children safe from any potential online uh, issues, 
that is something you're going to want to be uh, careful of. And when we when we say online predators, we don't just mean I think what we traditionally think with uh, you know that TV show to meet a predator. I'm, you know, I'm sure many of us have seen that. But uh, we're also talking about banking safety. People are looking to steal uh, banking cards and information, credit card information. So there are all sorts of people out there looking to do harm. And uh, it doesn't necessarily look like what we once thought it was. In the last panic list, I talked about a lot of symptoms in children that don't worry me, the pediatrician, as much as they typically worry parents. Now I'm going to kind of flip that script and talk about my number two and three are things in children that I tend to worry about more than the child's parents do. Number one is dehydration. Um, when children are sick, they usually have fevers which that increases not only their temperature, but it increases their heart rate. They breathe faster and they sweat more. Children get dehydrated much faster than adults do when they're sick. And one of the more common reasons children go to the emergency room or admit to the hospital are to get IV fluids because they get dehydrated when they're ill. And so one of my biggest recommendations when your child is sick is to really encourage them to drink liquids. And although when I'm at well child checks, I'll often encourage parents, listen, I want most of what your child drinks to be water, up to three cups of milk a day, other things like juice, Gatorade, sodas, etc., generally unnecessary. When a child is sick and they are barely drinking anything, those rules go out the window. I don't care if it's Kool-Aid. I would probably judge a parent if they chose vodka, but outside of that, <laughs> outside of that, I want your child to stay hydrated. Hydration is the number one priority. A general rule of thumb is if your child is in diapers, you want three or more wet diapers a day. Um, if they are outside of diapers, two or more voids, or they're going to the bathroom at least twice um, in 24 hour period. Giving them salty snacks, such as crackers and potato chips can also help increase their thirst. Um, don't worry as much about what they're eating when they're sick, but definitely strongly encourage those things. Number three on our panic list is something us pediatricians or physicians will call respiratory distress. So when a child has a respiratory illness, meaning a virus usually that makes it difficult for them to breathe, signs of respiratory distress are going to be your child is breathing faster. They are sucking in their rib cage. You can see their ribs much more. Their belly might be jutting out. They may be sucking in underneath their neck. You can see almost like, whether it's called tracheal tugging, but kind of right at the base of their neck, you'll see almost like a divot kind of with every breath or their nose, the edges of their nasal passages might be flaring as they're breathing. Those are things that I very much worry about as a pediatrician because that means your child is working extra hard to breathe. Um, if you're not sure if these things are happening, call your pediatrician's office or take them in. Um, if your child cannot talk to you and hold a conversation the way that they normally can, that is a huge red flag to me that they need treatment very quickly. A good example would be um, if a child's old enough to know their alphabet, ask them to say their ABCs. If instead of saying A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, they go A, B, C, D, E, if they can't get out more than a few letters between breaths, we know that they're working too hard to breathe. And that is an emergency in my mind. What could that lead to? That could lead to- Or what could it mean? That could mean, um, well, it's certainly significant if a child has asthma, a child could have pneumonia, a child could have, if they're underage two, have bronchiolitis, um, which is a viral infection in the bronchioles, which are the medium passages in their lungs. 
but that is something that means your child may need oxygen and they may need to be seen very quickly. Sounds like bad news. I would panic. Hence our list today. All right, so our next one, we're going to transition to a topic that we've actually had an entire episode on. So we're not going to get too deep into it, but if we're going to talk about a panic list, one of the things that worries me uh, as an educator and a parent too, of course, is bullying. If your child shows signs and symptoms of being bullied, and I'll tell you what some of those are in just a moment, that's a serious issue. That can lead to mental, physical distress, harm, physiological, emotional. I mean, there's a lot of negative things that can come out of bullying. So some of those signs that you want to look for uh, if you're worried about your child being bullied is uh, bruises. So there could be physical harm being done. And so bruises, uh, particularly if they are unwilling to show them to you. So if you just happen to see them and you ask it, ask them about them and either they deny it or just kind of push it away as no big deal. Uh, that is a concern because usually that means that it's a recurring type of situation and they're just trying to shy away from it. If they are uh, very isolated, if they talk about feeling isolated, if they are secluded in their room for long periods of time where they don't appear to be interacting with anyone, if you uh, see on their cell phone or some type of communication that they have, with uh, threats or verbal abuse, those could be signs. Uh, there are lots and lots of different signs. If you do see any of those, number one, of course, try to talk to your child. If they're not sharing much or they're unwilling to share, uh, reach out to the school. See if they are seeing anything, if uh, seeing any differences in your child. One big thing with bullying is, and as an educator, I, I you know, we try our best. You know, we try to notice these types of things, but here's the thing. A boy is not going to bully a kid in plain daylight in the middle of class or while a bunch of adults are watching. That's just not how bullying works. It's done secretively. It's done uh, behind the scenes. It's done quickly. It's done when people are not watching. And so these are sometimes hard to tell, hard to watch. So you have to actually watch the child's just day-to-day uh, attitude and actions and does it look different than you know what they're typical or what you're used to uh, persona attitude behaviors are in coming up with this panic list as a pediatrician i thought of some safety topics that i try to address with every well child check if it's relevant and i know that pediatricians generally take these topics very very seriously because we've seen their consequences and so one of the safety topics we talk about is car seat safety so it's really important that you make sure your child is using the proper car seat whether it is the infant carrier whether it's the five-point harness whether it's the booster seat with the high back or make sure they're in the rear of the car until at least age 13. Following these car seat safety techniques really does help keep your child safe in accidents. I have seen, I've seen both ends of it. I have seen a baby who unfortunately was in their big sibling's arms in a car accident and that child ended up basically brain dead um, from a car accident. I've also seen from the opposite standpoint, 
I've seen a, it was a seven or eight year old patient of mine um, still in their five point harness because that is incredibly safe place for your child to be. And as long as you're under the weight limit, which is usually about 65 pounds, that is the safest spot for your child. They were in a terrible car accident with their mother. Um, mother was hospitalized for about a week. Uh, it's doing okay now. Um, car was totaled. The child came to see me by dad. The child did not even have a bruise on him because he was properly strapped in his five-point harness car seat. So car seats are something that pediatricians take very, very seriously. And listen, as a, as a long-time car rider door opener, that's my official new title, I've seen every <laughs> scenario situation known for children who ride in the car in the morning on the way to school. And I'm talking about from kids who are buckled in properly, like Jacqueline said, with harnesses and proper car seats, to kindergartners who are riding shotgun in the front seat and everything in between that. And look, I'm not the I'm not the car police, so I'm not gonna be the one to start harping on on where the kid is seated. But you know, there there's something to be said about just being aware and being cautious about how your kid is is riding in the car. And I know for a lot of the parents driving, especially to school, it may only be a two-minute ride, a three-minute ride, but that accident can happen real quick. And so, you know, whether it's a, a one-minute ride or a three-hour ride, you want to make sure that they are safe and buckled in properly. Yeah, the thing with car accidents, which are one of the most common causes of pediatric deaths, no one thinks it's going to happen to them. Um, and number six uh, is another safety topic that kind of falls in that line. It's uh, children not wearing helmets. So children on bikes, skateboards, scooters, dirt bikes, four-wheelers, etc. Um, it is so important that you protect your head and wear the correct helmet for whatever you're riding. Um, my spiel to patients is, listen, us doctors are really good at fixing broken arms and broken legs. Usually worst case scenario is surgery. Us doctors are not the best at fixing broken brains. And I've seen this. I've had uh, teenage patients who um, actually both had kind of similar, well, sort of similar um, accidents on four-wheelers. Um, one was a child who was riding in the woods on a four-wheeler, not wearing a helmet, um, and got into an accident. And he unfortunately had a brain bleed. He was in the ICU for a bit. Um, and it's still... Uh, dealing with kind of headaches and some post-concussive learning disabilities uh, kind of off and on since his injury. Um, had another patient. Um, she was an avid four-wheeler rider, but she was wearing the correct helmet. Um, she actually tried to cross the road and got hit by a car, <laughs> but brain-wise, she was completely safe. I mean, she had to have some surgery on her leg, but she's all healed now. And this is just more speaking point to the power of wearing a well-fitting helmet. Your brain is the most valuable part of your body. Please, please, please protect it. All right. For our next one, let's go back to the classroom for a second, to schools, and talk about a topic that we've touched on several times in different kinds of episodes, and that's with reading. And we've talked about, even this season, we had Naomi on, and she talked about early reading strategies with your child and how to build up vocabulary and good reading habits. And so we've talked about reading a lot, but we haven't touched as much on, well, when do you worry? Like, when is it starting to be concerning? And it's a loaded answer. I, we could probably spend an entire episode on it, to be honest. But in a nutshell, 
reading concerns should really start around third grade. Uh, when K2, pre-K2, up to second grade, we call it learning to read. That's when you're building the foundational reading skills. In third grade, we kind of switch it around, and I'm speaking generally in education. In third grade, we start referring to it as reading to learn. So the foundational reading habits and skills are supposed to already be there. So in third grade, many states, schools start testing. And so if you are not in a uh, rhythm yet with your reading, if your child is not in a good rhythm yet with their reading, you're going to start noticing some major frustrations because now they're being tested. Now they're being assessed not on how they can read, but what they are learning from their reading. Adam, this brings me to a good question that I've noticed at the office. When should parents be worried about their child's lack of letter recognition? Uh, part of our well child checks is we do a we do the hearing exam, but we also do the vision exam. And generally starting at age five, five or six, we have children read letters to determine if they can see. And sometimes I'll note that a child at their five, six, seven, or even eight-year-old well child check, they can see just fine, but they are not identifying the letters. Yeah, so that'll be at the end of kindergarten. Developmentally and curriculum-wise, kindergarten is where letter, letters are introduced both by sound, recognition, and so on. So I would say by the end of kindergarten, children are, in general, supposed to be able to recognize their letters. Now, is there a spectrum for this learning? Of course there is. Could there be a first grader who learns them a little bit later? Of course. But generally speaking, the end of kindergarten is when letters should be identified. Uh, third grade, again, just to reiterate, is when I would start looking at, all right, if my child is not reading at all, and when I mean reading, I mean being able to read the words on the page and be able to have some type of recall about what you just read. So those two things, if you do have concerns about those, you're going to want to talk to your child's teacher and see what are they noticing? Are there any interventions going on? Are there any small group opportunities? Should my child get some tutoring? What kinds of things could I do at home? So those are all kinds of questions and conversations that you can have uh, with your child's teacher. All right, moving on to our next one. I think this is number eight is uh, just uh, an issue that we see as children get older, um, middle school, high school age. And the start of this could be any number of things. It could be stress. It could be anxiety. It could be peer pressure. It could be experimentation, any number of things. But it's drug, alcohol, and other substances. Now, we're not, trying, we're not saying the experimentation stuff. We're not worried about that. We are talking about regular use of drugs and alcohol. So whether it's daily, weekly, just a habitual pattern that is building where your child is perhaps addicted to these substances. That is concerning uh, because I'm sure many of you can, can imagine the long-lasting impact and effects of uh, substance abuse and addiction. Yeah, what I see, I won't say often as a pediatrician, but what I definitely see is in the teenage population, um, I would say marijuana use is probably 
one of the more common positives that I get when I'm screening teenagers alone. And when I have a teenager who's using it on a more regular basis, you know, not tried it once or twice at a party because a friend offered it, but is using it, you know, whether it's monthly, weekly, daily, often they have some underlying depression and anxiety that they are trying to self-treat. Often adolescents perceive marijuana as safer because it's incredibly difficult to kind of overdose on it and die in that instance the way it's potentially possible for alcohol. And it's legal in many places. Yes, but in long-term studies, it shows it's really detrimental to the growing and developing brain and can worsen mental health, the depression, anxiety. So while the child thinks they're making their depression or anxiety better, they're actually making it worse, and it's preventing them from getting the help that they need. Branching off of that topic, um, we know that the child brain is much more impulsive and pleasure-seeking than the adult brain is. They don't have that fully developed prefrontal cortex till about 25 years old. You've heard me mention this many times if you're an avid listener to our podcast. And so, Especially if a child is using substances, that leads to our last topic that as a pediatrician, I find incredibly worrisome, and that is unsafe storage of guns in the home. And so while for some reason this seems to become a political and controversial topic, I will tell you if you talk with any pediatrician, we feel very strongly that children should not have unsupervised access of guns and that safe storage of guns in the home is incredibly important. Um, Starting in 2020, guns were the number one reason that children died. They surpassed motor vehicle accidents. In 2018, guns surpassed motor vehicle accidents for children of color. Um, As far as pediatric deaths, Um, the most common causes are going to be suicide, homicide, and then accidents, with suicide and homicide being much higher um, than accidents. I was recently at a pediatric conference um, talking with a physician colleague, as well as an individual who uh, works for the state justice department. I'm talking about gun safety. Um, They surveyed teenagers, and a third of teenagers stated they would be able to get a loaded gun within one hour. And that is, as a pediatrician, very, very concerning. It is very, very important that if you have guns in the home, that they are stored securely, ideally in a safe with ammunition locked separately. There are many, many state programs that have very inexpensive, if not free, gun locks that they hand out. Um, There's also programs where you can temporarily store guns if, let's say, your child is showing signs of suicidality or significant mental health concerns. And we've seen in the news time and time again, uh, young people who are able to have access to guns. And unfortunately, uh, many of them are the people that are on the news with school shootings, uh, public sector shootings. And so, you know, we're not here to discuss, debate, anything about gun ownership. We're just saying, if you have guns in the household, store them safely. Uh, Jacqueline gave real good advice there. Just have that lock safe, separate the ammo, and be aware. Over half of parents who say their guns are hidden and their children do not know where they're located are wrong, and the children know exactly where those guns are. So that's why we're really, really strongly encouraging gun owners to have safes for their guns. Yep. So 
as we wrap up here, I hope we did not scare you off on the end of our season three episode. That was not the intent, but we want to make sure that we are transparent in some of the things as a pediatrician, as an educator that do concern us at a certain point, because there are things that as parents, we don't always think are either dangerous or worrisome or concerning, but there comes a point where they are. And so we just wanted to have an episode that brings that to light. We want to uh, sincerely thank everyone for listening to uh, not just this episode, but our season and the first three seasons of Ed Med Talks. And Jacqueline, go ahead and wrap us up. There's no such thing as the perfect parent. However, you can be the perfect parent for your child.